Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to the podcast. Joining me in this episode is Dr. Andrew Rumbach, an assistant professor at Texas A&M University. Andrew and I dig into his field of study, hazard mitigation. I haven't covered it much, and Andrew shares his perspectives on how hazard mitigation and adaptation have much in common. We also discuss some of his research in historic preservation and the threat of climate change, along with a fascinating insight on how mobile homes can act as proxies on how resilient or how vulnerable a community is to threats like climate change. It touches upon class, racial equity, and low-income housing. This was a fun and insightful conversation. I hope you enjoy. Okay, don't forget to subscribe to the America Daps newsletter. We highlight the latest episode and news and stories related to that episode's topic. We also highlight other climate podcasts and share a few other climate-related adaptation goodies. In the show notes, there is a link to subscribe. And here's a call to action. Encourage your friends and colleagues to subscribe. We're looking at other platforms to communicate with the public in addition to this podcast. Okay, before we get started, I wanted to let you know about another great podcast. How do you deal with all the bad news about climate change and humanity's sustainability crisis? Well, you could cry incessantly or pretend there's no problem, but that's not nearly as fun or useful as listening to the Crazy Town podcast. Each episode of Crazy Town challenges the status quo and makes you think differently about how we could live on planet Earth. In Crazy Town, you feel like you're hanging out with smart and funny friends, gaining insights and sharing laughs. Follow Crazy Town wherever you get your podcasts. Crazy Town is part of the Post Carbon Institute Podcast Network. The Institute is a nonprofit organization leading the transition to a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable world. To hear a sample directly from the hosts, stick around until the end of this episode to hear their trailer. Okay, adapters, let's join in with Dr. Andrew Rumbach and learn all about hazard mitigation. Hey, adapters, welcome back. Today, I have a very exciting episode. I am talking with Dr. Andrew Rumbach. Andrew is an associate professor of landscape architecture and urban planning at Texas A&M University and faculty fellow at the Hazard Reduction and Recovery Center. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. My first real episode dedicated to hazard mitigation, so we're going to talk all about that. But I thought it might be nice to start us off. You're there at Texas A&M. What's the program there? Where, Where are you at? What are you doing there? Sure. So Texas A&M, I actually just arrived. So this is my first semester here. I'm in landscape architecture and urban planning program. And within that, there, there are several programs, but I'm part of the urban planning faculty. So uh, we have an undergraduate, master's degree, PhD degree, everything built environment, resilience is happening at A&M. Okay. You know, it's a big open question, but how did you get involved with this field of study? You know, I went to graduate school. I lived in in Portland, Oregon, and was doing my undergraduate and spent a few years in Portland afterwards. And I really got into the idea of of doing urban planning because of some of the work I was doing in Portland and some of the people I'd made friends with. And so I went to graduate school for planning, really thinking that I was going to work in an area like real estate development. And then Hurricane Katrina happened when I was a, a first semester graduate student. And so I became very involved in the Katrina recovery, uh, worked closely with neighborhood organizations in New Orleans, worked with other universities and a community partner and spent the next couple of years really focused on Katrina recovery. And, and that sort of set me on the path of doing hazard related work and the rest is history. Well, talk about trial by fire, Katrina <laughs> being one of your first things. So urban planning is your actual area of study and then hazard mitigation. I think it might actually be useful to some people. When I was prepping for this episode, I didn't quite understand what hazard mitigation was in the first place. You hear it all the time, and in the, especially in the adaptation space. And we're going to talk a lot about that a little bit later on. But what really is hazard mitigation? You know, hazard mitigation, honestly, a great topic for conversation is what's the difference between hazard mitigation and climate adaptation? There's there's so many similarities between the two. You know, hazard mitigation, I really think about as, you know, different things we can do to anticipate, you know, potential hazards and try to reduce losses from future hazards. And that can be everything from infrastructure to social vulnerability reduction to, you know, better land use planning. So really it's about being proactive about natural hazards rather than reactive. And it's, it's really, 
you know, in the old traditional uh, emergency management cycle where you have, you know, mitigation happening in the period before disasters, we don't think about it like that anymore, but it's really about anticipating future events and trying to reduce harm from those events in different ways. And so I think it actually, uh, it shares a lot with adaptation more so than, than I think that's probably the topic we're talking most about today is more so than maybe we all realize. And, and that would be great if we could think about each other as more closely related than we have in the past. Oh, we're going to get into that. Don't you worry. I, I guess I'm just sort of studying the stage here too. And I guess back to that idea that hazard mitigation, is there particular areas of study that you tend to go into that? So you're an urban planner is, is, hazard mitigation mainly populated by urban planners? I mean, who, who's in there? No, and not just urban planners. I would say that that planners do uh, play, you know, that's one of the areas that we do focus on quite a bit. You know, in the mitigation space, I think you're going to find a lot of folks who are interested in things like infrastructure, thinking about how we design our infrastructure systems to either mitigate the hazards themselves or try to reduce losses in places that are exposed to hazards. You also have folks who are working in things like green infrastructure and other types of, of you know, ecological thinking that may have been less common 20 or 30 years ago, but are becoming much more common today. But planners do play a big role in mitigation because, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of what happens in terms of reducing hazard losses has to do with what decisions do we make about the land we have, and what we can do on those that, that land, and that's squarely in the domain of, of land use planning, which is which is a lot of what planning is. And so, you know, when we talk about hazard mitigation, we're not only talking about the the types of plans we make, thinking about the future and and setting forth an intentional path to act. We're also often thinking about you know the kinds of uses of land that may promote or detract from you know building safer, more resilient communities. Okay, so this is your area of research, but who who's out there and actually this is their area of responsibility, and I'm thinking of government entities or specific agencies who are players in that respect? You know, at the federal level, FEMA has a, a mitigation division, and they also, through the Hazard Mitigation Act, which was a, a major piece of disaster legislation that was passed in um, 2000, this is where we create multi-hazard mitigation plans. Every state has one. Now, close to, I think, 30,000 jurisdictions at a local level have an approved FEMA hazard mitigation plan. So FEMA helps coordinate and oversee and provide grant money for mitigation. But most mitigation actions are actually happening at the state and local level. And so you have a lot of different players who are responsible. So let's take a typical community, for example, when they're thinking about what kinds of mitigation actions they can take. It may be the public works department that's thinking about things like infrastructure. It may be the land use and planning department thinking about things like what are we allowing in floodplains and what are we not allowing? It could be private organizations or nonprofits thinking about how are their clients potentially vulnerable to hazard events and how can they promote resiliency through mitigation action. So it's a pretty broad, I think it's a big tent, but when we think about you know strictly what are the institutions that are responsible for the hazard mitigation plans and then hazard mitigation investments, it's oftentimes FEMA and emergency management working in collaboration with different areas of state and local government. Okay, perfect. That's the sort of context I was looking for. I want to dig a little bit more into your research, too, is that you you did a lot of work in Colorado, and one of your areas that you focus on is historic preservation and resilience. Can you talk a little bit about that? How do those two areas meet? Sure. Uh, You know, so this is an area where I'm doing more and more research now. And so I think at a fundamental level, I guess I should start by defining, you know, what are what are historic resources? Well, you know, historic resources are those people and places and things that that have historical value and that we often want to protect. And so I think we oftentimes think first and foremost about historic buildings, for example, and historic architecture. But there's many other types of historic resources, whether it's, you know, sites where things happen that we want to commemorate. Even, you know, landscapes are part of our uh, historic fabric. If we think about going, you know, pre-colonial times and oftentimes thinking about, you know, what sacred landscapes and who indigenous peoples and what they value in the landscape. And so there's a lot more to say about how we actually define historic resources from a policy perspective. But I think the long story short is that historic resources are really important to communities. There's a tremendous economic importance that's pretty 
plain and clear to see. People like to be in places with a lot of historic character and tend to want to visit there and spend money there. There's a, a big economic benefit to preserving uh, historic resources. But there's also an equally important and less easy to measure value of historic resources. And it's really, you know, they bring us all together in different ways. They're they're part of our shared and collective histories. They help people have a connection to their past. And it's the things that we leave behind that future generations will connect with us. And oftentimes it's what when people think about, you know, what makes a place valuable? What makes this place worth uh, living in or, or saving or protecting? Why do I care about this place? It's oftentimes those kind of historic resources that are often informing the, those feelings. And so there's there's a, a term for this that we have in research called place attachment, where people feel very attached to a particular place. And so, you know, that kind of value is there. It's very, it's what we call intangible. It's very difficult to measure. It's very difficult to specifically define. But when it's lost, it can cause tremendous harm to a community. It can cause a community and its, its residents to feel very disconnected from their past. It can make them feel, you know, less invested in the place they're in. It's a, it's a sort of trauma that can happen after a disaster that um, can really deeply affect a community for a very long time. And so the research that I'm doing is, you know, there's not a ton of great research, to be honest, in this area. There are a lot of individuals who have studied this. There are some institutional and policy related tools that we have. But overall, it's an area that I think is really under understudied, underappreciated, underinvested in in mitigation and climate adaptation. And it's an area where I really want to contribute to because I think protecting these these places and these things and these connections that we all have is a, is a really important piece of the overall resilience puzzle, if we want to call it that. So one of the papers that you shared with me was some of the, I, guess, I don't know if it's, what you call it, a survey, but in Colorado, you looked at a small town there and how many historic structures there were and they were under threat. Could you, could you explain more broadly and what that research was about? Sure. So this is a, a, a piece of research that I've been doing with a couple of really fantastic PhD students at the University of Colorado, Gretel Follenstad and, and Anna Bierbrauer. And so what we're doing is with this big picture idea that historic resources are really important to communities, not just for the economic value they have, but also for for how they tie us all together and how they bind us together. We started to look at the at the research and say, okay, well, how many of these historic resources are potentially at risk from hazards? You know, if we want to be proactive about this, if we want to mitigate that risk and we want to go out and, and think about where do we strategically put resources in order to have the, the most impact, which is really what I think of, you know, from a planning perspective, what mitigation planning is, what do we know? And we realize, well, we actually don't know much. There's not, you know, the state of Colorado, like many states or most states, doesn't have any sort of easily accessible data or understanding of how many historic resources may be exposed to different kind of hazards, floods or or any other hazards. And so we set out to do that foundational research to really just help us understand the scope of the issues that we might have. And then also to look at how are the communities that have a lot of historic resources, are they planning um, for those hazards? And so we pretty uh, basic, you know, basic research, we went out and we created a database of all the historic resources in the state according to um, some different state and national definitions. And then we looked at where they were potentially in flood, you know, floodplain areas, whether 100-year floodplains or 500-year floodplains. And we found that a lot of resources are in floodplains, and yet very few communities are proactively thinking about that risk. And so we think it's a, a really important issue. And again, it's an area that we need to connect the dots much more between preservationists and the folks who work on things like emergency management. Okay, so that you you had this paper that demonstrated all this, and so that local community, what do they do with it? Did, are you part of that process, or or is it more like okay, so here here's the the risk that's out there? I mean, what what are next steps? Do you make those recommendations? Yeah, so we we in Colorado, I'm I'm a, a member of the steering committee for what's called the Cultural and Historic Resources Task Force. This is a group that, in the wake of the 2012 and 2013 disasters that we had in the state, which outside of Colorado, you know, they they're not the big attention grabbing headlines like uh, Hurricane Harvey or, or something like that. But in Colorado, they were really devastating events for our state, things like the Waldo Canyon fire and the 2013 floods. This group came together afterwards, and this was a group of historic preservationists, also folks who are primarily concerned with 
historic collections, things like museums and library collections, and emergency management. Because the the thing that we recognized in the after those events was that many of these resources were either very closely threatened or actually destroyed, and there wasn't a mechanism in place to have communication between these two different groups to help prevent it from happening in the future. So this group came together. I'm a part of their steering committee. And the idea is that we, you know, I'm one of the, the few researchers in the group, but I'm trying to help the, the the group and the state to understand which resources might be at risk and then to develop the kinds of tools that local governments would actually need to First of all, recognize that risk and see where it is. And then second, to potentially apply for grant funding or other kinds of support that would allow specific property owners or stewards to reduce that risk. And so, you know, here's a concrete example of that might be a community that has very low planning capacity. Maybe it's a small town or a rural community. They have relatively low planning capacity, relatively low historic preservation capacity, but they also have a a great historic downtown, let's say, for example, that's in the floodplain, they might not even know, first of all, that their historic downtown is in a floodplain. And second of all, they may not know that they are eligible for certain kinds of grant support that could allow them to, you know, mitigate that flood risk, document the buildings so that if they are damaged, they're able to be restored and recovered more quickly and without damaging the historical integrity, educate property owners about that flood risk, and they can potentially do things on their own to to help protect historic resources. There's all kinds of different actions, small and large, that can 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 contribute to that mitigation. And so, again, it's sort of a first step. As a planner, I always have a very optimistic view of the world, which is that um, information is the first step towards uh, meaningful action. And so it's really providing that baseline information that can help. And I don't know a lot about historic preservation, the laws and the rules. And I think it's, it's hodgepodge of federal, state, especially local. And, you know, some communities do it much better than others. But I imagine if they had access, like you were describing, to this information, because you can't go in and just, if you're renovating a home that is registered, you know, as historic, whatever, there's all sorts of rules and such. But it, it would seem that if it's unearthed, maybe a climate impact in the future, are there ways that existing policies can be rewritten to prioritize, like you were just describing? you know, regards to flooding and ways to help around that. And I'm assuming it's very difficult because there's just so many rules on the books at different levels. That's a great point. You know, I think that the, you know, in this country, every community can approach historic preservation in their own way. And so where you live really determines a lot about the rules and regulations. So, um, you know, in our paper, for example, we talked about a place like the city of Boulder in Colorado, which is, you know, very high capacity, a lot of preservationists, a lot of historic resources they're protecting. It's um, very difficult for someone who owns a historic building, for example, to tear it down or after a disaster to do things that would uh, damage its, its integrity. Other parts of the state, it's entirely up to the property owner to decide what to do with that, that, that property. And so, you're right. It, do, it does vary depending on where you are. But in many instances, it's people who own and protect. And this could be individuals. It could be foundations. It could be, you know, cities that own museums or, or those, uh, you know, different modes of ownership for, for different kinds of historic resources. There's usually a desire to protect. You know, they own them for a reason. And there's a desire to, to protect them from damage, but also from losing that integrity that's so valuable to them. And so, you know, I really think that there's a there's an opportunity when it comes to helping the owners and stewards of these places understand the risk they're at. They can then sort of proactively take steps to protect those resources. You know, shifting to climate change and talking a bit about climate change, there's a really great community that's emerged. You know, it's called Climate Heritage is the, the hashtag they use on Twitter. They've done a lot of you know, terrific organizing around conferences like keeping history above water. So it's not just about the hazards that we already face. And again, you know, it's important to remember these are non-renewable resources, right? When you lose a piece of history, it's gone. It can't be recovered afterwards. And so every time there's a disaster and we lose a piece of our history, that's a, it's a loss that we can never get back. And so we already face a lot of issues from the hazards that we have every day, like a fire or a flood. And then with climate change, a whole host of new issues that are coming in, everything from how are the materials going to perform in a different climate to how do we make decisions, really tough decisions in places with a lot of resources? 
What do you prioritize if you can't save everything? How do you even make those decisions? Whose voices should be involved? And so climate change presents an entirely new set of complex challenges to a system that was already struggling with with mitigating hazards. And so it's terrific that there are uh, people and organizations that have stepped forward and are really trying to organize around these questions. But everything I've heard and and been involved with, the, the talk is exactly what you said. We need far more resources. We need far more coordination And we especially need uh, more consistent rules and regulations at the local level that will help us to make these complex decisions, because right now it's it's much too fractured among different places. Well, you've inspired me. I I need to go dig deeper again on historic preservation. I think I told you I went to a Keep History Above Water conference, and that was really fascinating. And I lived in Georgia in a place like Savannah, Georgia. You can't even, like, change a light fixture because the historic preservation rules are so tight. And to their credit, I think that's a great thing. But how are they thinking about sea level rise? Like, you've got all these rules to protect the integrity of these historic structures, but then – Okay, five feet of sea level rise in the future. Are you guys going to adjust with those times? Anyway, it, it's a fascinating area that I think that needs worth exploring a lot more. Well, and you know, and I would say one more thing, just from a you know very, I think it's also important for us to, to as a community to realize too that the, you know, what we consider to be historic is a very has a very complicated past, and it's a, a past that needs a lot of correcting. You know, it's very it's very tied to you know, the, the sort of colonial era forward, a lot of what we, we choose to call historic is the architecture of European settlers in this country. And so there's a lot of resources, whether it's pre-colonial, things like archaeological sites, you know, sacred landscapes and places that have already struggled to gain recognition and are going to, you know, are going to be on the front lines of climate change and really need federal policy to change in order that they be eligible for the kinds of resources that you can get to protect a downtown Savannah, for example. Um, and then there's communities that don't fit these easy definitions of historic that we developed through this legislation 70 or 80 or 90 years ago. And so if you look at someone like my colleague here at Texas A&M, Andrea Roberts, and the Texas Freedom Colonies Project, this is a new way of thinking about preservation of place that's not so tied to buildings, but rather tied to communities and people. And so there's so many areas where we need to push forward our understanding of preservation and climate. It's a really, I think it's a really exciting and important area to work in, and we could certainly use all the help we can get. So I hope some of your listeners um, want to become involved with that. And, and there's critical conversations to have, but there's also just a lot of good practical and policy related work we could be doing. All right, you listeners, if you're in that field, reach out to me. Let me know what you're you're up to. Okay, we're going to do a little pivot, and this is what you've sort of been referring to earlier in this conversation. But let's just start off. You you have a quote here that I think would be a good way to kick off this conversation. Is you said stop thinking so narrowly about the word adaptation. So, and I I want to bring this back into hazard mitigation. You were sort of saying an adaptation, pretty much one and the same. So let let's go from there. What were you thinking when you said that? You know, I like I said, I would really. You know, something that's been really occupying a lot of my thinking lately. And, you know, so I'm a, you know, I'm a hazards person. I'm a disaster person. The way that I came into this field and the way that my career has evolved, I've mostly thought about disasters, catastrophic events, big sort of singular events that often then tie together over time, especially in certain regions like Texas and Louisiana, for example, where you have multiple of these kind of events. I've also come up in the time of, you know, increase concern, recognition, acceptance of the fact that climate change is real. It's it's, it's here and it's going to happen whether climate mitigation is successful or not. So we need to think, be thinking about adaptation. And so one of the things that's been occupying my brain a lot is is trying to understand why there is such a, a seeming division between people who are doing hazard mitigation work, which has been a long-term project of people in, in emergency management and disaster management planning and climate adaptation folks, because in re- in reality, A, the problems are too big for us to be split as a community. It's just um, we're all fighting uh, the, this this beast that we, we need to, to fight together. And then second, conceptually, they do overlap in so many ways. And so that's, I think, when I was talking to you earlier, and maybe I said that you need to have uh, not such a narrow definition of adaptation. I think what I was really trying to encourage was that we're, we're all sort of playing on the same ground and we need to figure out how we can how we can work together and more collaboratively in order to to really succeed in the goals that we've set out. Okay, so the field of hazard mitigation, you just said it's been around longer than, you know, adaptation as is a profession is relatively new and how does climate and you climate change is 
is part of that is relatively new. How have you seen it evolve the field of hazard mitigation? Because you think of hazard mitigation, if you're doing it right, you're setting yourself up to, to mitigate these hazards. And But with climate change, these hazards are getting bigger or they're almost like a moving target. Was hazard mitigation always flexible enough and designed just to kind of deal with that reality? Or is climate change really forcing some big changes in the field? No, that's a great point. And I, I think for, for our conversation, it would be great to sort of divide the the thinking into two piles. One would be, okay, conceptually, mitigation and adaptation. And then I think very productively talk about, you know, in reality, in the sort of the, the space of policy and practice, what differentiates them. So conceptually, like I said earlier, I really think of, you know, if hazard mitigation is about anticipating future hazard events, and taking meaningful steps to reduce losses from those events, it sounds a lot like adaptation, right? There's, um, again, we may be focused a little bit more on extreme events rather than very slow onset events, but that's probably more a problem of identification and policy than it is about, you know, the, the concepts of it. You know, I, I think that adaptation does deal with some of the more persistent and chronic aspects of, of climate change that maybe mitigation misses. But overall, I would say 90% of what we think about as hazard mitigation and what we think about as climate adaptation are actually the same thing. I think where when we move from that conceptual space into the practice space, that's where I really believe that we could offer some pretty strong critiques of both fields of practice in terms of, you know, what could they be doing better in order to work better together? And I'm, I'm happy to talk about those critiques, but I, you know, it'll be, that'll be the, the most interesting and potentially provoking part of our conversation. We'll do it. Go for it. <laughs> Go on. Let's get started. <laughs> Give me some critiques. I, you're the academic. You're going to have smarter well, critiques. I, well, I would than me. ask you first is if you agree with me about, you know, your definition of adaptation. Does that sound, if I describe mitigation that way, how would you say adaptation is different from that? Again, I'm catching up on hazard mitigation as a field, so it's hard for me to sort of say how you know the overlap, how close it is. I, to me, I've spent a lot more time creating, I guess, tension between adaptation and resilience. You know, resilience is is these you know it's words, but resilience I think is a subset of adaptation, and that in itself is its own little battle going on out there. So regarding hazard mitigation, it's harder for me to kind of have those critiques so maybe you should take a first shot sure and you know this is I, i'm sure where i'll start to get myself into trouble but that's fine Play, um, no that's all gold you please know, <laughs> well you know i think so mitigation when we move away from what in concept it it should be to what it is i think that we start to see some of the the reasons that it's it's been unable thus far to really rise to meet the challenge uh, of climate change but has every potential of doing so. And so part of it is that, you know, a lot of what happens in terms of hazard mitigation does get dictated through this, you know, the federal government through FEMA has what are, what are called multi-hazard mitigation plans. That's the Disaster Mitigation Act asks for communities to develop these local hazard mitigation plans. And when you do that, if you have a FEMA approved hazard mitigation plan, you then have access to a number of different kinds of grants, both pre-disaster mitigation grants, but also post-disaster mitigation grants. And this is quite a bit of money for some places, you know, billions of dollars a year that are spent on these grants. And so most jurisdictions in the United States have an approved mitigation plan. Over 80% of jurisdictions have an approved mitigation plan. And there's a bit of a, a cookbook from FEMA about how to develop these mitigation plans. And so what you find is that a lot of the mitigation plans look very similar to one another. They have the same sections. They're sort of meeting the requirements of FEMA. The main goal is to get approved and to have that approval on the books. How effective they are at actually spurring real mitigation on the ground is a little bit of an open question. And so one part of that, it's a there's a lot to talk about there, but one part of that is that mitigation plans tend to look backwards into history in terms of previous events in order to then think about hazards going forward. That's crucially important. We need to really understand history and, and historical events in order to understand um, what might be coming. But also, it, it falls short in an era of climate change because the past is not necessarily prologue once you, we've added you know, warming to the mix. And so, Mitigation plans tend to not anticipate climate change nearly as much as they could. 
And again, that's partly because of the cookbook, but it's also partly because FEMA is a federal agency. Federal agencies have different leadership in different times with different political parties. And during different eras, it was more and less acceptable to acknowledge climate change within uh, hazard mitigation plans. So that's one example of where climate change have been too, or, or I'm sorry, uh, mitigation plans have been a little bit too rigid. They haven't been able to incorporate the kind of dynamic and uncertain hazards futures that many communities are going to face and are therefore less effective than they should be at framing up an adaptation agenda. That's a huge difference there, right? There is that if you, your classic adaptation plan now, it's like you do a vulnerability assessment and then you might, you, you look at that historic, the nature of the, what, what's been happening there, but then you do scenario planning and there's all these future projections that are baked into the adaptation planning. So yeah, I mean, that, that's pretty big difference there. And I'm assuming hazard mitigation is flexible enough that you could start bringing in future projections as sort of standard operating procedure though, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, something, again, FEMA is a, it's not known as being the most nimble of organizations, but it does change and, and improve over time, in my view. And so mitigation division is now not only in, in the, the, the staffing and in how they're thinking about mitigation, but also in terms of their mandate to think about climate change has been pointing more towards incorporating climate change into, into future risk scenarios. And so that's been now, how that actually works out in terms of the how the, you know, oftentimes these plans are produced by contractors, different, you know, consulting firms, how they're actually what uh, the, the software that they use, how climate is going to be incorporated. Those are some open questions, but absolutely it should be accommodating to that and allow for a different kind of, of risk analysis than is happening right now. I don't know the right time to introduce this, but, you know, the the other reason that this has been on my mind is not just from a you know, not just from a an issue of professional uh, collaboration and professional collaboration and camaraderie. It's not just because of sharing our resources and our policy focus. It's also because the other side of this is that when we're talking about adaptation in this country, the resources that we're actually going to use to adapt in many places, many places, especially outside of the big cities that have big tax bases and can spend a lot, most places in this country, which are not those, the resources that they're going to use for adaptation are going to come through hazard mitigation grant funds. Um, we're talking about hazard mitigation grant program dollars. We're talking about post-disaster uh, recovery funds and post-disaster mitigation grants. We're talking about community development block grant disaster recovery funds, which work alongside of, of, of mitigation grants. So the practical reality in my mind, the practical policy reality in my mind is that we can talk about adaptation all we want, but when it comes to funding adaptation in most places, it's going to come through these these mechanisms that understand mitigation as the way of thinking. And so that's that's been the big disconnect for me. The frustration for me is, and this gets this starts to get to some of my criticism of the adaptation community, is that many of the ideas are the same, yes, but also a community that doesn't hasn't worked particularly well or hard to understand what emergency management is and how the mechanisms of emergency management work and really truly understand what does it mean to work through FEMA in order to achieve adaptation? What is FEMA? What do they do? What are their limitations from not only from a, a policy perspective, but also from a, you know, a, fe a federalism perspective? What can money be used for and what can it not be used for? How do we need to change FEMA in order to make mitigation grants better for adaptation. Those are the kind of conversations that I would love to see us having. But instead, many places and many people are putting time into developing adaptation plans. But how are you going to fund those adaptation actions at the end of the day? Where, where are those dollars actually going to come from? Are they actually compatible with the mitigation ecosystem, so to speak? And, and so I, I feel like oftentimes there is a disconnect there. I agree where existing money is probably going to come that way. But there is chatter with the Biden executive orders that there was talk of a climate adaptation fund. And are they going to put money in there? And do we need that? And I would argue that we do. And, and I guess addressing your point of the existing money that's going to go toward adaptation that, you know, through hazard mitigation stuff, I think there's a huge awareness opportunity with the public and not to knock hazard mitigation, but the, the terminology and the area doesn't just necessarily capture the public's imagination. And I think we have a lot of educating to do with the public and, you know, the notion of like adapting to climate change, something simple. And if 
you're jumping into the adaptation bandwagon just purely from a, a communication standpoint. I think there's value there. And if that means like new pots of money because it requires you to communicate the broader issue of adaptation, I think there's value there. So uh, I do hope it, they start getting their own pots of money. And they very, very well may be. And, you know, in a perfect world, if I could, you know, wave a magic wand and I could do everything I wanted to do, I would be tempted to have, you know, mitigation and adaptation even long-term recovery after disasters be in its own federal agency or department, you know, work alongside FEMA, but have FEMA focus on emergency response preparedness and have longer term processes and, and, you know, the kinds of things that FEMA didn't historically do, but has expanded over time to start including and still tend to be their less funded and less focused areas of FEMA's mission. But the reality in my mind, the practical reality is that you know, we don't have decades to sort out these issues. We have years. And so the practical reality to me is that we will very likely be using primarily these existing policy networks, networks of practitioners all over the country who develop these mitigation plans and who then interact with local governments about mitigation spending. The the apparatus that we have around mitigation will very likely be a big part of the adaptation funding and conversation. And so, again, it's not at all helpful that climate change mitigation means something different than hazard mitigation. That's the least least convenient of all terminology choices. And it may not be the term that we should or want to be using from a public communication perspective. But I guess, again, and I'm sure other guests from emergency management have probably emphasized this to you in the past, but we do have this well-developed desperately in need of some change and reform, but we have this entire architecture in place of mitigation that will we're likely to want to tap for adaptation. And yet I feel like there's there's a going to be a tremendous clashing of cultures and understandings um, as we start to do that, because, again, these conversations are often happening in two very different spaces. You know, another example of this that I often think about is you know, a lot of folks in the adaptation world are talking about things like strategic retreat and coastal retreat or relocation of communities. Again, from a federal perspective, how do we fund those efforts right now? Well, we fund them through primarily through FEMA, hazard mitigation grant program dollars, and through community development block grant disaster recovery funds. And so again, the it's such a hot topic in adaptation talking about coastal retreat and how we think about that conceptually, but how do we actually do it in practice? Um, well, we already do it and we do it through the emergency management, you know, legislation and through the emergency management grant dollars. And, and those two cultures, when they come (laughs) into contact with one another, again, I think there's going to be some real challenges there. And I, I keep hoping that we'll learn to anticipate that that clash of cultures and start to to communicate more freely because we need this to go well and we need things to go quickly and we need to sort this out and and doing so in in different spaces is not necessarily the most productive way to do that in my mind. It's interesting you said strategic retreat or coastal retreat and really in I guess adaptation circles it managed retreat is the the terminology most used and so it was interesting that you were using that. Sure. It, uh, listen, I want to pivot again here because I would <laughs> already but this goes by so fast. Last Lad Keith, Dr. Lad Keith, is University of Arizona. He put us in touch originally. He recommended you. And so I, I sometimes do this. I ask for questions from people I know in the field because I'm like, all right, give me something here that I can use. And so Lad gave me this question and he and maybe you won't agree with him. He says hazard mitigation planning really only traditionally focuses on flooding and wildfire and et cetera. Why not for extreme heat? Is that true? Hmm. Don't think that's true. <laughs> then, then stand up for yourself. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm think. I mean, this is where you start to get into trouble because everyone, you know, we all, we all have our areas, right? We all sort of see our part of the elephant, and it's so rare that we all get to sort of take a step back and see the whole thing. And that's another sort of area that I get feisty about is the sort of lack of research capacity within FEMA and within emergency management generally, which would help with some of these things. I do think that extreme heat is a hazard that is studied in multi-hazard mitigation plans. And I do think that places, you know, the, the normal hazard mitigation plan process is that they go through a ri- what's called a risk analysis. They identify hazards, they look at community vulnerabilities and capacities, and then they tend to rank 
the sort of, you know, hazards in terms of their importance within the overall mitigation plan. And then they produce a set of mitigation actions that they then recommend for different kinds of funding. And then they have to, every five years, they update these plans and have to report back. That's hazard mitigation planning as a specific practice related to FEMA hazard mitigation plans. I think what Dr. Keith is talking about is the how oftentimes the end of the plans where we actually invest tends to focus on things like flood is absolutely true. And that's another critique of the hazard mitigation universe is that far too infrastructure focused. But I don't think it's true that they don't consider those events at all. Okay. No, I, I wish he could call in directly right now and tell me how wrong I am because he's more of an ex, far more of an expert on extreme heat events than I am. But I will be furiously Googling this after we talk and, and figuring out the answer. Well, now you've thrown down the gauntlet and lad, I, mean, <laughs> I know you're listening to this. And so I'm going to offer an invitation for you to come on maybe for a little short five, 10 minute interview. If the, you can back up that. So we create a little bit of a controversy here. I love it. But you know, I, I will say that actually points to what I think is a really, another really important thing we should acknowledge that adaptation or mitigation are such enormously complex tasks that are, require such a, a, a variety of you know research expertise policy expertise engagement expertise community expertise you know there's you know the how, how do you actually accomplish it is such an incredible problem that there's no profession that can possibly claim ownership over mitigation or claim ownership over adaptation and that's another criticism that I have of the mitigation community is that it has become so associated with FEMA because of the Hazard Mitigation Act that emergency managers feel like the mitigation space is something that they have primary ownership of. And that's, in my mind, absolutely false and actually is really counterproductive because the culture of emergency management is changing. But the the people that make up emergency management traditionally are folks who are experts in preparedness and response. Only in recent years has mitigation become and recovery then afterwards become more of a concern. And so you have a, a great mismatch in many, many places, not everywhere, but many places between, you know, the kinds of knowledge and and expertise and experience you need to be a good mitigation planner and the kind of knowledge, experience and expertise you need to be a good emergency manager. And that's, I think, another area where there probably needs to be a bit more of a of a fight <laughs> to start to sort these things out and we really the, the the people and the the experience we have contributing to mitigation plans right now is is not going to be sufficient to meet the challenges that that already is not meeting the challenges that disasters pose but is especially not going to meet the challenges that climate change will pose on top of that and so that's that's my goal in life my calling in life is to to train a next generation of of planners who you know are experts in things like hazards but also experts in things like engaging communities working with communities to co-produce knowledge um, working with local governments to understand land use planning and decision making around land use planning and zoning understanding budgets and local budgets and what the constraints are those kind of you know making those connections so that we can actually create hazard mitigation that is effective and and again part of that is broadening out who is involved in mitigation and making sure that uh, a field like emergency management doesn't feel like anything related to FEMA exists with them. Because again, it has to be a much larger and diverse group of, of people in order to solve those challenges. We don't have to spend much time on this, but I thought it was really interesting. And I wanted you to just quickly sort of summarize, but you've done some research on mobile, mobile parks. And one of the conclusions that you make in the paper, if I understood right, is that Mobile parks are actually really important for overall community resilience. What, what is that? What do you mean by that? Absolutely. This is uh, not that you got me in trouble because I could talk about this for. Uh, yeah, but for, I didn't want to. That could be its own 30 minutes, but I just I <laughs> wanted to touch upon it. But we could end this with like, you know, this might be sure. a longer conversation later, whatever. But I just I, I do feel it's important that, that that was an important point. So go on. Go on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me give you the pitch. So, yes, I am one of my. Main areas of, you know, and overall, a lot of my research focuses on people and places and assets that are less visible to 
formal institutions like planning or the government and, and the function that they play. So in India, I study a lot of informal settlements and developments and, and sort of how the state does or does not acknowledge them or work with them within, in relationship to hazards. Here in the U.S., one of the things that I've been working on a lot is understanding mobile home parks and, and where how do mobile home parks what is their relative value and what is their relative risks that they face? I think many of us, when we think of mobile home parks, what people sometimes call trailer parks, what the industry would prefer we call manufactured home communities, we often think of disasters, right? We think of the tornadoes. We think of the, the hurricanes. We think of Hurricane Andrew. We often think of them as being very vulnerable to disasters, but the I think the public understanding of what mobile home parks are is relatively low. And I think their, their value within the housing system is, is really criminally, uh, they're underappreciated. And so, you know, mobile home parks are these businesses, these small businesses and sometimes large businesses that rent pieces of land to people who own mobile homes so that they can park their mobile home on a spot of land and get utilities. And so, that's not, okay. That sounds great. So people in mobile homes, they can live in these places and then they can move their mobile home when the disaster comes, right? And it's, well, that's not actually true. Mobile homes are no longer mobile. They never really were mobile, but they're especially not mobile today. 80, 80% of mobile homes never move once they're set down. And so what mobile home parks really are is a, is housing. And they're a source of housing that's crucially important within our overall housing scheme. They're tremendously affordable. And they're also tremendously accessible to a lot of people who may not be able to access other kinds of affordable housing, like public housing, for example. And so you have these mobile home parks. Millions and millions and millions of people live in mobile home parks in the United States, especially in, in places like the South and the Sun Belt. And yet they kind of fall between the cracks of our thinking about disasters, mitigation, climate adaptation. And so the argument is not that mobile home parks in and of themselves add to resilience. It's the fact that, you know, what does it mean to be resilient as a community? Well, part of any community's health sustainability resilience is that people have access to housing that is affordable to them. It allows them to do all kinds of things, right? They can access work, they can access schools, they can access public institutions, they build a community, it's a neighborhood. And so everyone needs that as part of being you know, healthy, whole, resilient. Um, and so mobile home parks play that role in many, many places and for many, many people, even if they're not the ideal solution that a lot of policymakers and, and, and scholars would like them to be. But the reality is that they are. And so when we study mobile home parks, what we're really studying is, first of all, just making them visible. They're tremendously invisible to the state. Most states have no idea how many mobile home parks they have, how many people live there. And then secondly, how does the very unique nature of mobile home parks, how does that contribute to them being especially vulnerable to disasters? And so that's what a lot of our work is, is not just that they blow away in a tornado. We're much more interested because that's true. And, and a lot of folks have, have shown that. But we're interested in how things like what is the fact that they're privately owned businesses? How does that affect the vulnerability of people living there? And so, again, not well studied, putting a lot of focus on it and really trying to I think it's a really crucially important topic um, that we need to address in our plans. Well, I think we should have a future conversation around this, but it really was a fascinating point. It really resonated with me. And if I have it right, if I kind of create analogy and, and, and one thing I think why they're so forgotten is that you really don't have a lot of mobile parks or trailer parks in major urban areas like downtown areas you know, on the on the range but that that doesn't represent most of America but if you're doing well by your your mobile home parks in a community you're 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 probably doing relatively well with your resilience planning. If I, I'm interpreting what your implications are, sort of like they're a canary in the coal mine. If they're doing well, then you're taking a lot of steps protecting the, you know, like you said, the people, that, the poor people and those kind of things. Do, do I kind of have that summary right? Is if a community is really taking care of its mobile homes, it's probably a much more resilient community. I, I think that's, I yes, I would certainly say that how we deal with our most the places that are most precarious, um, like a mobile home park, which, you know, our paper lays out all these different ways that mobile home parks tend to 
not only are they more exposed to hazards, but they also really, when a disaster does happen, people living in mobile home parks tend to have a much diff- more difficult time recovering. And the reasons why they shut down, they get kicked out, they don't have access to the same resources as renters and owners do. There's all these different reasons. And so, yes, when we have a, a policy framework in place that, that gives them the same rights as other people, when we have the resources in place to help them to recover at the same rate as other people, when we have the the rights, they should have the rights to access the same kind of legal advice or different kind of recovery programs as other people. Yes, that that is when, when we know how we treat the most precarious places is a good reflection of how we're doing overall as a community, whereas right now our recovery system is very much geared to benefit single-family homeowners who are not you know, tend to have higher incomes, tend to have more voice within politics. There's, they have all kinds of advantages anyway. It's great to protect them as well. We want to have everyone protected during disasters, but, but how we, how we protect our most precarious people is really a reflection of how we're doing overall as, as a, as a community. Okay. That was much more thoughtful way of describing. So. Well, you know, I, I do want to say just one other thing and, and not to, this is another key misconception about mobile home parks is that they're, they, they're not as common in big cities. And that's, that's by design. You know, they, many cities require mobile home parks to be located in places that are often industrial areas or commercial areas. They often require them to be fenced off so you can't see them from the road. There's actually a lot more of them than most people realize. We, we just finished mapping in Houston. There's 2,300 mobile home parks in Houston. Wow. So, you know, even in big cities, they are more common than you might imagine, and they're highly vulnerable to not just disaster losses, but also sort of gentrification more generally. And so, you know, again, for your listeners, I'd encourage you, you know, find what's your most local mobile home park. I'm guessing it's going to surprise you about just how many there are and just how affordable those places are and yet how precarious um, the people living there probably feel because they have relatively few rights should something happen. All right. I, I love that. We went down that path. We could spend more time on it, but I do want to wrap this up with just a, what are some of the projects that your students are working on. You talked about some of the previous projects, but if you know you work with you have graduate students in you at Texas A&M, right? So what are some of the projects they're working on? Yeah, so you know, and I just arrived here, so I'm starting to to gain some students, which is fantastic, but I would love to yeah, highlight a few things that are happening. So, um one of our big projects that we're working on, this is myself and Esther Sullivan and Carrie McCarowitz, who are professors at CU Denver, um, also Shannon Van Zant here at Texas A&M, is this mobile home park research project. It's funded by the National Science Foundation. We're studying mobile home parks in Texas and Florida and how they recover after big events, Hurricane Harvey and Michael and Irma. And so we've got several graduate students working with us on that who are doing fabulous work on you know, modeling mobile home park loss, looking at new uh, geospatial methods that sort of help us understand these very invisible places. Um, so people like Shanju Zhang are working with us on that. I also have a, a new student who I just became involved in, in her committee, and she would be a great guest at some point in the future, named Jennifer Blanks, who's working on a historic African-American cemeteries in Louisiana. They just published a paper herself and several other folks, including Andrea Roberts, Dr. Andrea Roberts. They just published a paper on how historic cemeteries in Louisiana um, are at a greater risk from flooding um, and also exposure to different, you know, the sort of air pollutants of Cancer Alley and showing how they, again, tend to be very invisible and yet they're really important resources. Um, I can send you that paper after after we talk today. So those are just a couple of examples. Like I said before, myself and Gretel and Anna are working on this historic preservation project, which is really fantastic and looking forward to, to building up new research projects with all the great students here as well. So adaptation, there aren't actually a lot of programs at universities. In fact, there's very few. And so it's you don't necessarily get a degree in adaptation. But would you say how diverse is hazard mitigation? Because I would I would say that adaptation is still very not diverse, sort of like the conservation sector. Is hazard mitigation more diverse? What What's the situation like in that respect? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. No, we, uh, there's tremendous work to be done. And again, this is part of the conversation about not taking over the space at all, but expanding the space to be more diverse in terms of, you know, who is involved in the conversation and policymaking, what perspectives do they have, and how well do we actually, you know, taking it from being a a very procedural function of the emergency management department where the the fire chief is writing the mitigation plan to really being more of a a reflective of 
communities risk overall and a sort of proactive community developed strategy for meeting um, hazard risk. But historically, the, the field has been shaped by white people, white men, especially uh, like myself. And it's been a lot of what we know about mitigation comes from a relatively narrow set of voices whose voices are tremendous, but is in great need of diversification. So there's some really new, exciting scholarship that's starting to emerge that's challenging how we talk about things like vulnerability and risk and really unsettling those ideas. And there's also a a need to really, we need to have people and voices in power that reflect the kinds of communities that we're most often concerned with. And that's, uh, again, part of what I I see as part of my goal in life is to, to, how do we you know, help bring people into fields like planning that are often directly involved with issues of hazard mitigation and climate adaptation. How do we make our fields more diverse, more inclusive? And how do we empower those folks to take leadership positions and to, to um, you know, help improve the effort overall? And so uh, we have a long, long way to go. But I think we're I can give you 10 names after this podcast. that I'd love to hear you interview that I think represent more experienced, more diverse approaches than my, than I do and, and would be great guests for you in the future. All right. Hold on that thought because we're going to get there. That's a great point is just the, the communities that are most impacted by these hazards. They there seems like there'd be a great opportunity to look at these grants, you know, sort of long term recruitment of people in these communities sort of saying, hey, maybe this is a field that you want to go in. And I know that might be kind of mission creep, but it just seems like a, a great opportunity to try to to get people that are most impacted long-term that those people are getting into programs like yours, but that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. In my view, I mean, I don't see it as, you know, as mission creep at all. I think that ultimately in this, in the United States, disasters begin and end locally. And I think climate change begins and ends locally, at least from an adaptation perspective. A lot of how we do things in this country, a lot of our power is pushed down to local governments. And so that means that we are, not going to have one big national climate adaptation policy that's going to solve all of our problems. We're going to have to have 50,000 fist fights at the local level to make this happen, not to use a, a fighting analogy. But I, I think there are, you know, oftentimes these things are worked out at the local level in very diverse, different kinds of places. And so if we actually want to be successful at hazard mitigation, or if we actually want to be successful at climate adaptation, we are in desperate need of diver, you know, of more diversity in the field because otherwise, we're just we're preaching to the to the choir, so to speak. We're we're often talking about the communities we're already familiar with and that are already uh, working with. And so, if we actually want to go beyond that narrow and ineffective focus that we've had in the past, we need far more diverse voices in the space. And so, I I don't think of it as mission creep at all. I think it's actually if we're if we're going to have any chance of succeeding rather than failing as we've been doing so far, um, it has to involve. That's got to be part of our mission. All right, you listening, you grant writers out there. I have a lot of university level listeners and a lot of them are very excited about the possibility of becoming an adaptation professional, whatever that might mean, urban planner, you know, in getting into your field. Any advice for them if they're looking at graduate programs? Should they reach out to you or are there other particular universities that they should take a look at it if they're going to focus on the work that you kind of do? No, I'd love for them to reach out to you. I think, you know, we think of ourselves here at A&M and the Hazard Center as being you know, the best place in the country to study planning with from a resilience adaptation perspective. We really think that we're in a position in a, a state that suffers a lot of hazards and disasters, but we also have a lot of strategic resources here at, at Texas A&M where we work directly with communities that are most impacted and have a lot of resources to provide assistance to those communities. And thereby, our students get a tremendous education that's um, not just the stuff in the book, but also the the stuff that they're learning on the ground and can be much more effective practitioners. You know, I think my advice for anyone listening who wants to be effective at adaptation is, you know, yes, it's partly through your professional life, but it's also, you know, not to beat the drum too much of, of land use planning, but ultimately a lot of things come back to land use planning. You know, what we allow to happen on land and, and how we invest in, in our pieces of land, where we put our infrastructure where we choose not to put our infrastructure, the support we provide to, to different communities where we invest or don't invest. A lot of things about adaptation come back to these local land use planning decisions. And so even if you're not going to become an urban planner, which many of us won't, become involved in your local planning commission. It sounds like the least fun thing in the world, but I think it's fun. But, you know, I'm a planner. But, you know, a lot of these decisions get made at weekly you know meetings that happen from 6 to 8 p.m. in your town hall and uh, that's where we make decisions about 
planning and zoning. That's where we develop our comprehensive plans. That's where we talk about, you know, if we're really going to take hazards seriously as a community, let's rework our development code where we no longer encourage developers to build in floodplains, but instead we incentivize them to build outside of floodplains. Again, these are not sexy topics, but at the end of the day, when you add all those decisions up, that's the, when we add all those up, that's whether or not we succeeded at adaptation or not in my mind. And so I, I just really always try to encourage people, even if you become something else entirely, get involved in local planning, um, having voices who understand climate change and understand the impacts it's likely to have, and then come up with practical solutions in their communities that fit their communities, politics and needs and resources. That's that's the, the biggest impact we can have. Okay, great final message. And I have two questions that I ask all my guests. They're more generic here. Do you have a Twitter handle that you could recommend my listeners to follow? And just if just one, just one. <laughs> it's so hard. You guys always give Besides me multiple. Mine? <laughs> I, I'll have yours in the show notes. Don't worry about that. But uh, if you could recommend a Twitter handle that you'd like to follow, it doesn't even have to be hazard mitigation. Usually it's related, but it doesn't have to be. I'm going to recommend Texas A&M PhD now a professor at the University of Maryland, uh, Marcus Hendricks, who does a lot of work on green infrastructure, local infrastructure, and especially studies how cities, you know, oftentimes infrastructures are very racialized. You know, there's discrimination within infrastructure itself, which then leads to part of the outcomes that tend to disproportionately disasters disproportionately affect communities of color. Part of that goes back to how we, we invest in infrastructure. And so he does Really amazing stuff on storm infrastructure resilience, and he also does a lot of stuff on citizen science where communities that are often voiceless can start to band together in order to provide citizen science to inform infrastructure policy. So that's Marcus Hendricks. Twitter is M-D-H Dubois, D-U-B-O-I-S. I'll include in the show notes. Great. And my final question is, and you may not pick 10 people, if you could recommend one guest to come on this podcast, who would it be? <laughs> well, I would also recommend Marcus. Oh, okay. Um, that would be that would be a fantastic choice. You can do one more because I try to make those two different because we're learning. The listeners like to learn of different people to kind of follow up on. So it, you can do the second one if uh, for a guest to come on. Sure. So then I'll recommend Fayola Jacobs, who's a professor at University of Minnesota. You know, she just graduated, I think, two years ago. So has been there for two or three years now, but has this tremendous piece in the Journal of Planning Theory where she really challenges how we understand social vulnerability. I think it's the kind of work that is going to directly challenge a lot of the thinking in our field, mitigation and adaptation. And I think she would be a tremendous voice to have on. Awesome. And you and you know, or you could potentially make a connection, right? Sure. I know her professionally. So yeah, I'd be happy to. Okay. I think she would... I think she would check my email. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't always come on, but I just, it's people, my listeners do follow up. They, I, I, they've told me that they'll just go look them up and they want to learn more about some of these people that my guests recommend, even if they don't ultimately come on the podcast. So it's, it's sure. good names. Okay, Andrew, this has been, uh, it lived up to my expectations. I thought it'd be a fun conversation and I learned a ton about an area that I haven't really focused much on and you're doing some amazing work and I really appreciate what you're doing and thanks for coming on America Adapts. Thank you. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Andrew for coming on the podcast. I have touched upon hazard mitigation here and there with various guests, but it was the first time I addressed it directly with a leading academic in the field. Andrew's point about adaptation and hazard mitigation having a lot in common is an important one. I think the terminology isn't doing us any favors. Hazard mitigation is just a terrible description of what is an exciting and important field. And yes, I know climate adaptation isn't much better. Not sure what the solution is for that at the moment, but as more sectors begin to deal with the impacts of climate change, I think you're going to see some more innovation in how we communicate about these threats. I also really enjoyed learning about the role of mobile homes in defining a community's resilience. Take care of your mobile home parks and you're probably doing a good job for the entire community. I know that's a very general assessment of things, but hopefully it will give planners more to think about as we pursue community-wide adaptation. Okay, some thanks. Thanks to Dr. Lad Keith at the University of Arizona for making introductions to Andrew in the first place. 
Thanks, lad. One of these days, we'll get back to our regular coffee meetups. And thanks to Lisa Craig of The Craig Group. She has a great blog where she interviews a lot of interesting people doing work in this general space. She interviewed Andrew, and it was a useful primer on some of the areas he works in. So thanks, Lisa, and check out both Lad and Lisa's websites in my show notes. Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast via American Apps, you should consider using a podcast. Sponsoring a podcast episode allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. So for example, and I haven't mentioned this much, World Wildlife Fund sponsored me to do several episodes around flooding and disaster management. At the time, I traveled on location to interview experts they wanted me to include as part of those episodes. Usually those episodes have quite a few expert guests. So basically they are sponsoring an entire episode to share their particular story. I've done sponsored podcasts with various universities like UCLA, Harvard, University of Florida, and quite a few nonprofits. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners and think about doing something different than writing a white paper at the end of your project. Most projects have communications written into them, so consider budgeting in a podcast. Email me at americadaps at gmail.com to learn more. So final housekeeping, join that Facebook page and Facebook community group. You have to join the community group, but it's really easy. I'll tick it off and you'll get in right in. I kind of do more informal updates there. And sometimes people share links to the work that they're doing. It's a cool hangout. Okay. On that note, I love hearing from you. Take the time to email me. This has led to some really cool things. I like to know who you are because it's useful to me. I need to know what fields you're in. I just learn a ton and it helps influence the guests that I recruit for the podcast. And so... Take that time. I know you're listening right there. If you're at your computer or make a note on your phone saying email Doug and just say hi or just say where you work. And if you're not even in the field, I'd love to hear just why you get value out of the podcast. And I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. And there's the website, americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time. We are now descending into crazy town. Work has become a luxury for those who still have a job. Protests against police brutality and systemic racism are spreading. Fires spread across three million hectares of Siberia. Crazy town, the pile of garbage that you never want to smell. If we're going to change the direction, the trajectory of this civilization, we're going to have to do things completely opposite of what we've been doing in the past, right? Channel your inner George Costanza. Whatever action you thought you were going to take, don't. Stop. Do the the opposite. Crazy Town, the podcast that's brave enough to face the truth. Playful enough to laugh about it. And even crazy enough to try something different. Please join us as we explore the mean streets of Crazy Town. Subscribe to Crazy Town on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nailed it.